And let's bow our heads to pray together. Lord God, we've uh, been reminded that you are indeed holy. Uh, Please take us and uh, give us uh, life through your word as we've sung. And may that life be holy and devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please take a look at this? Uh, Thank you. Andrew? Um, Picture taken in 1975. Uh, The guy with the long hair on the right uh, is actually as old as I am now. Ah, uh, oh, I know. Anyone know what happens next? Struck by lightning. The guy on the left uh, gets third-degree burns. One of the other guys that was with them uh, is killed. They didn't know what it was that was making their hair stand on end. They just thought it was funny, and so someone took a picture. Lightning, thank you, Andrew, lightning is beyond our power to control. It fascinates us. Thunder still astonishes us. Certainly astonishes our dog. (laughs) Uh, uh, Not for nothing is the appearance of God at Sinai, before Moses, with the appearance of thick cloud and lightning and thunders. And it's much the same in the picture that you have open in front of you in Revelation 4. The chapters 1 to 3 are behind us. And for this uh, summer, short summer series that kind of interrupts our series on the kingdom. For this short summer series, as Jonathan said, we're going to be looking at elements from the book of Revelation. And we start with what's often the more familiar bits, the letters to the churches 1 to 3, behind us. Uh, We are now after this, as chapter 4 begins. John is in the spirit on the Lord's Day, and what he sees is a door. It's not a great gate, it's just a door such that one person can go through. It's an invitation then to John alone. And what he sees through the door is the throne room of heaven. To put it another way, he sees heaven presented to him in terms that he would understand. I'm not sure that if we were to be granted this privilege today, we'd see it in quite the same way. Because what John sees is a kind of 3D cartoon. I could put in front of you today a picture of a bulldog. And for some of you, that would suggest Britain, the UK. For others of you, especially if it gave an answer in the affirmative, it would suggest Churchill Insurance. (laughs) But you would know how to decode a picture of a bulldog. And John is presented with a picture that would have had meaning for him and for his time, and we can get some of it, but we're not even now sure that we get all of it. And first of all, I want to draw attention to that lightning and the thunder. Because what John sees uh, throughout this book, if it's accompanied by lightning and thunder, is a particularly important moment. And what he sees here is the powerful creator God who appears with the signs of his power, the lightning and the thunder, In a traditional picture of wealth and glory, he has the precious stones and the jewels. 
And from the throne come the flashings, flashes of lightning, the rumblings and the peals of thunder. And at the centre, around the throne, are four living creatures. Now those creatures share character with creatures that we learn about from the book of Isaiah or the book of Ezekiel. And I'm not going to go through all of that now. We can say that they see everything. They lead the praise at the centre of everything. Just for who God is. Four was the number of the winds. Four was the number of the pillars of the earth. They seem to stand for the creation itself. Alive in all kinds of ways. And no one has ever reliably decoded those animals in verse 7. The lion, the ox, the the man and the eagle. They're alive. But with all that aliveness brought to worship. The spiritual is in this picture. There are seven lamps burning before the throne of God. And those are the seven spirits of God. But there's also the earthly, the creatures, the precious stones, the rainbow, the sea. Now, if you know the book, you'll know that there comes a moment later on, towards the very end, in fact, when the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. This throne room is a picture of how things are before they've passed away, when it's still the first heaven and the first earth. The whole created order as it was first created and is now. It's a picture of God in charge of the whole creation. But there is more. Around the throne, we're told, uh, uh, let me find the, uh, verse 4, are 24 other thrones. Now, 24, what are we going to do with that? Well, some reckon that that must be a sign for uh, 12 apostles, um, 12 tribes of Israel, 24. Ah. But in truth, the church of God appears in other ways, in this vision, outside our reading today. 24 is the number of the ordering of the priests who serve in the temple, according to the first book of Chronicles in the Old Testament. So it may be that what's being signalled here is the ancient ordering of God's people in service being brought into the throne room where we are soon going to see, in chapter 5 and verse 6, the Lamb standing at the throne. We've got the Old Testament of these uh, priests gathered to offer service and the New Testament, the Lamb at the heart of the throne. Both covenants are brought together in a cartoon-like way to say that old and new belong together. There's only the one people, God's people, and he is God, not just of all places as creator God, but of all times. He's a Lord of history. But there is more. There are all kinds of cartoons in the Bible. Uh, as, as Jonathan said at the beginning of the service, I didn't know he was going to do it. Uh, sometimes we use 
odd language in church. And sometimes the Bible uses odd language. And and because we're sort of used to it, we often don't realize just where the oddness may come from. It's all distant enough from us that one bit of oddness reads pretty much like another. But one of the cartoon bits is at the very start of the Bible. This is at the end. One of the other bits is at the very start, in Genesis. And there are signals going on through the account of the creation that that, uh, tell us that what's being written up in Genesis is kind of competitive storytelling. It's not just the account of how things started. It's, we've got a better account of how things started than you have, oh, other nations around us. The Israelite creation in Genesis is boundaried and ordered, while other stories of how things came to be were much more chaotic, especially the Babylonian myths. They had the the chaos of waters conquered and reduced to calm. Now, the Israelites were largely, and are largely, uh, a landlocked people. They didn't like the sea. And with that as the practical reality, and the Babylonian picture as the mythical story to which they were opposed, it's not surprising that the sea became for them a picture of everything that stood against God. So the sea of glass in verse 6, the glassy sea that we sang about, it's very specific. It's not just go down to the uh, uh, coast today of Norfolk, and if you see a calm sea, it's a sign of how powerful God is. It's powerful in a particular way. The sin conquered, the, the sea calmed, is a picture of sin and evil conquered, flattened, subdued. Subdued, notice, but not eliminated. It's still there, this sea, but it is before the throne of God, facing his power, and later monsters are going to come out of the sea. Great battles will be played out, but in this picture, the sea has been calmed. Evil and sin have been subdued. Actually, the sea itself, because it's part of this first heaven and first earth, is going to disappear. The very end, we're told there was no longer any sea. It's going to vanish. Such is the total victory of God. And the rainbow remains. The sign to Noah way back in Genesis again that God's power would never so conflict with his mercy, the rainbow, that it would wipe out the earth. Whatever his judgment, there will be mercy. So there are, going, there are three, three aspects to this picture that goes on for John of the throne room. God is creator and sustainer of all. He is almighty. He is the one who brings old and new together. He is God of all history. And thirdly, he is the one who has subdued evil and sin. He is all holy. It's not surprising then that when the creatures lead his praises, 
what they are saying is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's very carefully crafted, this picture that God reveals to John. And it's not a random picture. It's a desperately needed one. Because it's in the throne room, in the chapter that then opens up in verse 5, that John is going to see the Lamb who will open the scrolls containing the meaning of history. And then in chapter 6, watch the persecution on the, ch- on the church of the earth and the suffering of the nations of the earth. Where uh, chapters 1 to 3 have been very much the revelation of now, John's experience is after this, but it's after this he looked. And he catches a sense that, uh, I imagine, almost immediately... Not not a sense of this is far off, but God is revealing to him that there will be this terrible time. Such a terrible time, chapter 6, that you're going to need the vision of chapter 4 to know that God is in charge. They are going to experience conflict and hunger and martyrdom and terrible things. And in the face of all that, they will wonder who's in charge. Well, says John, let me tell you what I saw. It's a cartoon picture that roughly equates to the words of Jesus at the end of John 16. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, what comfort that would be. To Christians undergoing or about to undergo dreadful persecution. We just prayed for Zimbabwe. And I think of the Anglican church there in Zimbabwe, which has had an absolutely dreadful time as Mugabe has tried to put his henchmen in charge of it. I spoke this week uh, to Reza Jafari, who's still waiting in uh, Coventry for uh, development in his asylum case. He fled from Iran, became uh, a Christian, And the British put him in an area surrounded by Muslims. Imagine what they're going through. It's not direct persecution, but they feel the heat. And they're not the only ones among us in our congregation today who know what it is to be persecuted for the Christian faith. What's amazing is how so many who are persecuted stand up under such persecution. Even their children, who you may think, well, what have they done? But they stand up under it too. But that's not all. There is other suffering too. In the face of that suffering, what a comfort it is to have chapter 4. Only don't we have to ask, would it actually bring any comfort at all? Would it? This week brought the convictions for murder of the mother and stepfather of Daniel Pelka, one and a half stone when he died. Of what use is it to know when such things happen 
that God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. If we don't ask such questions when we come together on a Sunday, what answers can we possibly begin to have when those who don't believe, as we do, ask questions about where was God? This picture in Revelation says that although terrible things are going to happen, God is in charge. Well, if he's really in charge, why do such terrible things happen? Why show a picture to John of God in charge, warning of terrible things? Why not just stop the terrible things? Whether that's in persecution of his people or harm of any kind to the vulnerable. We don't often look these days at the issue of what we call, what used to be called probably, providence, of whether and how God might be in charge of everything. We don't do it very much, and that's for one good reason and one bad reason. We don't look at it, it's good reason this, because it's not in the end one of the questions that's any easier for the believer than it is really for the unbeliever. Why is there evil if God is good? Is a question that is thrown at us. But the truth is that we believers don't have much of an answer. We know what God has done about evil. But only God knows finally why it exists. We don't need to be unsettled by the question asked by unbelievers. We just need to say, we don't know. We do not know why there is evil. But we believe because we see what, John, what Jesus has done about the evil in our own hearts. That's a good reason. But there's a bad reason why we don't think much about providence, too. I wonder whether we actually believe God is in charge. Do we believe that our hairs are numbered, that not a sparrow falls, but God knows about it, Do we follow the logic that says God knows exactly what's going on in that house when Daniel Pelka is being tortured? We may not like the idea that we come morning by morning before a God who could have stopped the abuse of Daniel and did not do so. And so we just let that side of God's reality fade away. Yet chapter 4 tells us God's in charge. Of course, there's a logic to a kind of answer. If God steps in for Daniel, then he has to step in for every abuse of the vulnerable. He has to prevent every such sin. And many a time, I have committed exactly that sin, and so have you. Most sin is an abuse of the vulnerable. The picture from chapter 4 is not, in fact, fully complete without the picture uh, as it's Uh, Finished off in chapter 5. The lamb stands there, chapter 5 and verse 6, at the center of the throne itself, at the center, as the creator, the almighty, the all-holy, God of all history, shows himself to be the most vulnerable creature in the whole of creation, in the cartoon vocabulary of the time, the lamb. To harm a Daniel Pelka is to harm the lamb all over again. And one trembles for that mother and for all who have harmed and yet have not accepted the healing of the lamb.
God is in charge. But this is not the in charge of a God who will now obliterate us in his wrath because that mother and I are in the same boat with you. It's the in charge of a God who came down and entered into the suffering of a Daniel, of a child in exile, a child with a dodgy background, a young man spat upon and rejected, a young man at 33 finally reduced to a bag of bones for us. No, we don't know why he did it that way, and we won't know until we meet him. But if God is in charge, then the terrible things done on this earth matter. Whether they're done by Magdalena Luczak, or by you, or by me. And we do no one any favours by forgetting that God is in charge. The claim that he is, is part of our summons to our world to fall upon its knees, as we have done but only because of his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we saw that uh, tragic picture at the beginning of this talk of young men laughing because they did not know the disaster that was about to befall them. Our world laughs when it should not. We saw the picture from the book of Revelation of the rainbow reminding us of your mercy. Our world needs mercy because we laugh when we shouldn't. Lord, have mercy upon us, especially when we abuse the vulnerable. And bring that mercy, we pray, to be known by many more. May we find ways of demonstrating our trust that God is in charge. And despite the horrors that our world knows all too much about, it will, it will, it will be good. Amen.